Devin, I want to start by taking you back to last season's Briar and discuss how impressive Team Gushu's performance was, considering everything they had to deal with. And I know it's a team that you've covered extensively, so I thought you'd be an interesting person to ask this question to. Now, I realize that any of the four members of the team would tell you that injuries, pressure, etc. weren't that big of a deal because that's what elite athletes say when you ask them those types of questions. But in reality, they had to face a very deep field, they had to deal with the pressure of being the home team while trying to win Newfoundland first briar since 1976 and they also had to deal with nagging injuries all things considered how impressive was team gushu's performance at last season's briar i think it's one of the greatest sporting accomplishments but performance under pressure that i've ever covered in my career and perhaps in the history of canadian sports because you you've set this up brilliantly really and and you're right you talk to any one of those four guys they deflected the entire week. It was remarkable, Frank, to be there, to feel the pressure, not only inside the Mile One Center downtown in St. John's, but all through St. John's and basically the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. I landed there. I raced into the arena. The bagpipes were going. You had McDuff at center ice. It was emotional. There couldn't have been a more dramatic setup to kick off last year's Briar. And the weight of the rock was squarely on the shoulders of Brad Gushu and the boys. They knew it. And I got to be honest with you, early in the Briar, they looked lost. They looked uh, consumed by the pressure. And you'll remember, I think it was at game four or five loss to Jamie Cooey in the Northwest Territories in the morning draw. It was a disaster. They were horrible. And that, when I write about this team, and I've covered this team extensively over the last year, I think if, if you watch this team go on to the Olympics this year, I think you can trace back uh, this real season uh, of excellence back to that loss. Who would have thought it would have been a loss to Jamie Cooey in the Northwest Territories to propel these guys to greatness? Something happened in that game, in that stadium. They, they went away from the ice. They had a what I understand is a very heated conversation. They regrouped. They were different people for the rest of the week because it could have went off the rails, Frank. They played uh, Brad Jacobs that evening. Their, their bond spiel could have been over in the third day. It would have been a disaster. Instead, it was this incredible galvanizing moment. And I still get chills when I think about that Sunday night, Kevin Cooey, Brad Gushu in the national championship, in the Briar final. I've never felt energy like that inside a venue for an event. The place was electric. And, uh, and that last shot, when you see Mark run out of the hack, I'm thinking, I'm not sure if I'm prepared to cover a story of these guys losing in this fashion. Because I thought Brad was, was going to come up short. Of course, we know how that ended. We know how the celebration went. It spilled into the briar patch. I've never seen a party like that. You know, Frank, I tell people, uh, imagine this. You had people from 18, 19 years old to 60, 70 years old partying until 1 a.m. And then, of course, the briar tankard. Uh, crowd surfing. It was for the rock. It was for all of the people. And it was one of the best sporting accomplishments under pressure that I've ever covered. Another team that you have covered quite extensively is Team Homan. Now, do you believe that Team Homan are creating the blueprint for the curling team of the future, where they have effectively become a business entity that happens to be a curling team? I think the professionalization of this sport, as you, you use the term business-like sort of mentality, is exactly the way this is going. And I've had a lot of conversation 
uh, not only with Team Holman, but with a lot of other curling teams. Um, I think it's a great thing, but I also think it can be a bit of a negative thing because you're seeing those, those you know, four, five, six teams at every bond spiel sort of rise to the top because they have created this formula and, and basically have been able to make it this their life, their career. They don't have to work other jobs, whereas you and I know a lot of the teams 10 years ago, this was kind of a side hobby and you'd show up at the bond spiel. Well, not for Team Holman. I mean, they map out everything. And, you know, it's interesting because they take, I think they take a bit of a, um, a bit of a knock in terms of perception, the way people view women curlers, because if you're focused like a Rachel Holman and she has that steely eyed look on the ice and she's very serious and very meticulous, sometimes people misinterpret that as being sort of the sort of the unapproachable. I, I think she's been referred to at times as the ice queen. And of course I know them outside of the ice and, and they're lovely. They, they laugh, they like to joke, they like to have fun, but it's an interesting conversation about the perception, especially in, in female sports, where if you're business-like, if you have a plan, if everything you do is so intentional, like this home and rink uh, has really created, then you might, you might be misinterpreted because you know, females in any sporting capacity aren't really supposed to be serious or have that masculine sort of competitive nature. Whereas I think, I think, like I said, everything you see about this home and rank, uh, you know, when I talk to them, they know what they're eating. They know when they're training. They know when they're on the ice. Their sports psychology aspect to the game is so dialed in. They've talked about the fact that even going back to last year before the Scotties, they had team meetings. They mapped out what each uh, month was going to look like. Uh, took a bit of a step back from the game. Remembered to have fun. So, so I think it's a really good point when we talk, you know, not only about the Holman team, but the sort of overarching architect of what it means to be a successful curler today. This is all business. You have to approach it that way. It's nice to see because these guys are better than they've ever been, uh, both in the men's and women's game. But uh, it can also at times be misinterpreted to being uh, the type of team that really doesn't have fun on the ice. Just one more thing. Take a look at how long Rachel and Emma have stuck together, basically from when they started throwing rocks to now. And I think that's all you have to do is look at that. In the women's game, where we know there can be uh, drama sometimes and we see teams splitting up more than ever, I think if we look at Rachel and Emma and how long they've really stuck it out, being the skip and the third specifically, and been in a lot of high-pressure situations. I even look back at the great teams, like uh, you can point to Sandra Schmerler. Those ladies stuck together through it all. And I think in the, in the women's game in particular, that level of trust, communication, that Holman team talks about all the time in any interview I've ever done with them. It's that trust and it's that communication in the most pressure-packed moments that makes a difference. And that's why I think uh, they've had su such success to this point, and I don't see that stopping anytime soon. Team Holman is going into this season's trials with about as much expectations on them as any team has ever had going into the trials, short of perhaps Team Martin in 2009. They've shown an ability to deal well with pressure over the past few seasons, but how do you expect them to deal with all of those expectations while playing in front of a home crowd with an Olympic berth on the line? 
I love the way they're approaching this because I tried to build up sort of this pressure-packed moment for them in, in my most recent interview. I mean, let's face it. Rachel Holman is basically going to be curling to wear the red and white to represent Canada on the biggest sporting stage in the world about 10 minutes, 15 minutes from where she grew up. It's a, it's a remarkable story, and they're owning it. And it's nice for me because you mentioned it, you get these moments where athletes will give you that sort of padded athlete answer and it drives me crazy. But I finally got a bit of a breakthrough as I see it where Rachel Holman looked me square in the eyes with that steely eyed look and she owned it. And she said, we want to be there. We want to win this. We're putting our goals. We're putting our expectations out there. And I think that goes back to a lot of the sports psychology and a lot of the work they've been doing behind the scenes where they're just owning it. They're not pretending. They're not using cliches. They're not beating around the bush. They're owning it. They're ready. They've won three national championships. They're the team to beat. We're, there's no question that this is the one thing missing from their very – young career already it's hard to believe that but they're still very young in all of this but it's the one thing they're missing from their resume i think they're ready for it there's a lot of pressure but they're owning it they're not shying away from it and when a team can own it and go in with that mentality and attack i think we're going to see that killer instinct uh, come december it's interesting to hear you talk about Team Homan's cohesiveness as a unit and Rachel and Emma's long-standing partnership because it brings to mind another team that will be at the trials but may come in flying under the radar, and that's Team Kerry. Now, Chelsea seems to be a polarizing figure to many people in the curling community for some reason, and she's obviously had an up-and-down type of Olympic cycle, playing with three different thirds over that period and, in my opinion, not getting enough respect for winning the Scotties in 2016, in part because Team Homan was not there. I'm wondering if you think that the addition of Cathy Overton-Clapham at third and the fact that Team Carey will not be one of the favorites in Ottawa might allow Chelsea and the team to play relaxed all week and perhaps cause a surprise. Because to be fair, Chelsea remains one of the better shot makers in the women's game when she's playing well. I'll never forget it, Frank. After last year's um, third place finish in St. Catharines, it was sort of this incredible moment where... Um, everything was sort of falling apart with, with Amy and there was rumor and speculation during the Scotties that this would be Amy Nixon's last bond spiel. It was, it was sort of dramatic. And then of course, Amy gets emotional. She does her post game interview after that game and there's tears and celebration and people are happy for her. And Chelsea says to us that she didn't even really know that this was happening, that there wasn't even really a conversation before before Amy made this announcement, made this moment. And she was furious, quite frankly. I didn't get to report on that as much as I would have liked, but she was she was furious. And it, it, it was almost this sense of like, okay, where do we go from here? And are we starting over and sort of this this drama that you sort of set up in this question. And, you know, I think a lot like Homan, I think Chelsea brings a real serious nature, a real competitive edge to the ice. But at the end of the day, you're right. She, when she is focused, she can beat any team in the world. And I think you bring up the good point of having somebody with the experience of Kathy Overton Clapton coming on this team. I think in those big moments, I go back to those big moments. This is where great teams and good teams are separated in those most pressure packed moments. I, I, I hate to dwell on this, on this home end team, but remember that shot 
in the 10th end of the Scotty's final. Michelle Inglot basically has a chokehold on this Holman rink, basically setting up a three in the 10th end, and Holman makes that incredible double. Those moments where you can just focus on curling because everything around you, the team dynamic, everything has already been laid out and you can just get in the hack and throw the rock. And I think at times in Chelsea's career, there have been changes. There's been this, there's been that going on where she hasn't been able to do that. I think, I think that's going to change. I think there's going to be a calming presence there from Kathy. And, and I hope it means that we see the best Chelsea carry because she is an incredible curler to watch. Uh, it's just such a pleasure to see her when she's calm, cool, and in the zone. It's almost robotic, right? You just know she's going to make the shot. So, you know, I go back to that, that, that moment of, of change and that moment of real sort of anger and frustration for Chelsea. After that, uh, I had the chance to meet up with her in Fredericton for, for the TSN event uh, earlier this year, a really laid-back atmosphere. It was the first time. I got to really hang out with Chelsea outside of sort of the real competitive curling situation. And, and again, I just reiterate that the, it's such a different perception from on the ice to off the ice. And it was a real pleasure to get to know her. But I think this is shaping up to, to be sort of an underdog. And she's somebody I'm going to be keeping a close eye on when it comes to the Olympic qualifier for sure. Before the trials come the pre-trials in Summerside next month. You'll be there covering that event. What are some of the teams and or stories that you're looking forward to covering in Summerside? Well, I mean, I, first of all, like, all you got to do is look through this list of men's and women's team who are going to be there, and it's just staggering to me. You know, some countries, uh, you basically have one, maybe two teams that do this little round robin, and they qualify an Olympic team, and then you come to Canada, and you have to have a pre-qualifier to the qualifier, and any one of these teams could be competitive on any given day. So first of all, that's that's the thing we need to get out of the way. It's remarkable how deep this country is, how many great curlers there are. One of the teams, maybe two of the teams that I'm really going to be looking for to come out on the women's side is uh, this Krista, Krista McCarville rank out of Thunder Bay. Krista and, and this team got on a roll during the Scotties and Crystal, you want to talk about an ice queen. I mean, when she gets dialed in, she can make every shot. And it is such a pleasure to watch. And you've got Lorraine Lang, the coach there, who really knows how to dial it in. So I'm going to be keeping my eye on the McCarville rank. I think they'll qualify through this route. And I think that they're another one of the underdog teams that I, I think could really get on a roll and be in the mix come Friday, Saturday, Sunday in Ottawa. You also have Sherry Madon who is always dangerous, who could always be a threat. And, uh, you know, Shannon Clybrink is also somebody there that I'm going to be keeping an eye on as well. So those three teams from the women's side certainly have the capability to, uh, to not only, you know, go on a run in, in Prince Edward Island, but also in Ottawa as well. And then, I mean, you look at the men's side, and uh, it's a little overwhelming as well. You know, I, Glenn Howard is there. You've got Jean-Michel Menard. You've got John Morris, uh, Simmons as well, uh, Charlie Thomas. So this is a bit of a tough one for me. And, and I think just being there, Frank, it, it's nice that CBC saw value in sending me to go cover this event because all you have to do is flash back to 2013 when somebody by the name of Brad Jacobs at this 
qualifier through the back door, got on a roll. Of course, he had a good season leading up to it, but he had to take this route to qualify. And then, of course, uh, went on to win Olympic gold. So this is this is a chance for these curlers to get on a roll. It's going to be a pressured situation. I like that because, you, you know, you even go to these bond spills and you see teams that have to go in that 3-4 game and then they sort of get a, or, or even a tiebreaker for that matter, a tiebreaker, 3-4 game, and they're playing and they're playing and they're feeling the ice and they're feeling that they have some momentum. So that more than anything, more than any of these teams, because I think it would be unfair to really say, I think this team is ahead of this team. More than anything, I want to see what team can really grab the moment in these pressure-packed situations, and that's why I'm going, because I have a sense that this will really tell us who can make a run when we get to Ottawa. You've done a lot of reporting on the growth of the sport of curling around the world, specifically in Asia. It's been a good season for curling in that part of the world with the strong performances by a number of Asian teams this season. The upcoming Olympics in Korea and the newly announced World Series of Curling that will include two events in China. What do you make of how well the sport seems to be progressing in that part of the world? Yeah, and you know, I think all we have to do is look at, you know, the gap continues to close i think you know i kind of relate it to the to women's hockey where you knew that canada and the united states were always going to be in the gold medal game and i think in a lot of respects we always felt that canada was going to be in the gold medal game in the men's and women's side in curling as well but then you see the gap kind of close and i think that only means good things for the sport i mean One of the remarkable moments in my career was last year at the World Curling Championships in Edmonton when you had this incredible story um, about curling being big in Japan. I mean, who would have thought, you know, Frank, I think they sent something like 25, 30 national reporters to Edmonton from Japan to cover this team because they were trying to qualify for the first time since Nagano, since 1998. And I was just starstruck by it. And, and they documented every shot and they were enamored by it. I mean, here they are uh, at Rexall Place in Edmonton uh, where the game is larger than life, where the crowd, where everything about it, and they're just sort of wide-eyed at the whole spectacle of it. And then you have this amazing story where the skip of the 1998 Nagano team uh, for Japan is commentating the games, and I understand about a million people are watching each each draw back in Japan. And, and you have the skip and, and, and the brother of the skip on the team, they're they were front row. They were front row in Nagano watching curling for the first time. And there they were representing Japan and qualifying this team for the Olympics 20 years later. When you talk about this great game and the legacy of this game and introducing this sport to places where it may not be as popular as Canada, all you have to do is look at that story and it is a direct lineage to the first time really curling was an Olympic sport. And now these guys are getting ready to go compete in the games in South Korea. I mean, it's a remarkable story. And, and, you know, you also have somebody like Nicholas Adeem who told me that uh, he used to watch Kevin Martin tapes, VHS. He would burn the tape out so many times. He watched past Briars, watched Kevin Martin, and he perfected his game. And a remarkable thing about that. Brad Gushu, without me telling him that Nicholas Adeen modeled his game after Kevin Martin, told me in an interview at the World Curling Championships that the reason Gushu was able to have success against Adeen is because he played the same way he played against Kevin Martin. It blew my mind. 
So, so you can see how the Canadian influence, and we know time and time again, a lot of these coaches have gone on and helped other people, including Glenn Howard, who could actually be wearing the Scottish jacket coaching Muirhead and could wear the Canadian jacket if he ever qualifies. But everywhere you sort of look in this curling world, you see the Canadian influence, and then you see it helping other nations grow this sport. And I think it only means good things for the games and will only mean a more competitive bond spill because you'll have these guys. I know Brad and Rachel went undefeated at the World Curling Championships, but come the Olympics, I think you're going to see a much more competitive field, and that only means great things for the sport, not only in Canada, but around the world. Devin, curling is arguably the second most popular winter sport in Canada, yet for some reason, outside of the national television networks that have contracts to cover the season of champions and the Grand Slams, and some local media outlets covering local teams and events, the sport does not get nearly as much coverage from Main Street media outlets as you might expect. Now, I realize that there have been significant cutbacks in the industry, but as someone who covers the sport closely, are you disappointed that there aren't more reporters from mainstream media outlets covering the sport of curling on a more regular basis? Uh, There's no question I'm disappointed. And I'll tell you, uh, as somebody who grew up in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, who grew up curling, um, who, who knows how much curling means to the province of Saskatchewan, it has sort of been a personal mandate of mine to not only share my passion for, for a sport that I think is, is one of the best to watch uh, and play, but to really sort of ingrain into the minds and, and the hearts of Canadians about just how much we care about this sport. And I can tell you, Frank, I get the great opportunity to travel in many different cities and towns across this country in my work as a CBC sports reporter. And everywhere I go, A, my curling coverage seems to follow me. And it's sort of this thing that everybody wants to talk about and sort of joke about. But it also shows to me that people care deeply about this sport. And I don't know what the disconnect is between not covering it and traditional media. And so, for example, last year, I pitched to CBC. I said, we're about a year out from the Olympics. I think it's important that if we want to tell these stories in an authentic meaningful way that I should be covering the Scotties, the Briar, and the Worlds. And they absolutely agreed. And I was grateful for that. But I took that initiative. I dove in. I didn't really, I, I wasn't given marching orders about how to cover it or how to do it. I just sort of threw myself at it and did it the way I knew how to report. And I think we had some level of success and traction. And I've actually had a lot of meaningful conversations with curlers um, and, and this isn't to, to toot my own horn here, but to say thank you. Thank you for giving us some coverage in, in sort of that mainstream platform. And it kind of breaks my heart because here's where I think it is. And this is what I've settled on. I still think that traditional media and even in the minds of Canadians, that curling is sort of this corn broom, smoke a cigarette on the ice type of sport where people, you know, you show up to an arena, you get a chance to talk to the athletes while they're playing. Uh, you, you can go have a beer with them in the heart stop lounge or, uh, you know, in the briar patch. And there's sort of this like sort of joking nature to the sport. And I think people misinterpret that as being this incredibly professional business-like game today. We have the Grand Slams, we have these bond spills almost every weekend, and yet people don't even know that this is happening. 
And I think there needs to be a shift. And I'm trying to be part of that shift because, again, here I am in Calgary preparing for coverage. And everywhere I go, people are talking about the leagues they're in and how much they enjoy watching curling. We need to start reflecting that in a meaningful way. I'm trying to tweet and write stories about that as much as possible. But I think as, as a group, we all need to do a better job. And all you have to do is look at the Scotties and the Briar and, and, and Greg Strong from Canadian Press and I are basically the only national media there when, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you would have media bench after media bench packed with national media. Cutbacks have done it, but I also think there's an, a, a sort of um, a, an obligation and responsibility that falls on some individuals who know how much this sport means to Canadians to step up and say, no, this matters, and we need to do a, a better job of covering a game that so many Canadians care about. And with NHLers not going to the Olympics, it's my belief that curling will be the marquee sport Canadians are paying attention to in South Korea. And I'm going to be there making sure I document every shot for Canadians. Before I let you go, you spent some time in Calgary. Do you get a sense from people there that Calgary will end up putting a bid in to host the 2026 Winter Olympics? I don't want to get into the politics of it, but I really think it is. You know, here I am in Calgary. You just had a municipal election where Nahed Nenshi uh, won a third term. I've had many conversations with him. He talks very fondly about those 1988 games here in the city. Everywhere you go, it's a part of the fabric of the people here who experienced it. And I think they want a new arena, and I think they want new infrastructure, and I think people should be, uh, pay very close attention to the lobbying and some of the conversations around uh, Pyeongchang, because I think that'll tell us a lot about uh, a potential bid coming from Calgary. And finally, Devin, since we spent a lot of time talking about curling in the Olympics, I'm wondering if you can share two or three athletes or stories from other sports that our audience should be paying attention to during the games in Pyeongchang. I think you should look at the cross-country skier, Devin Kershaw. This is a guy who has devoted his life to this sport, cross-country skiing. You want to talk about uh, undercovered sports? Uh, this is one of them. And Devin Kershaw basically told me this is his last games ever. He said if everything would have went uh, according to plan, he wouldn't even be training today. This is it for him. Keep an eye out for him. I'm at the Olympic Oval today. Denny Morrison looking to get into his fourth Olympics after a motorcycle accident that nearly killed him, a stroke, uh, his resilience, his recovery, his story. He's skating here today, looks to be in the Olympics. Pay attention to him. And then I think you should really pay attention. I won't say a specific athlete, but pay attention to the sliding sports. Luge, skeleton, bobsleigh, these are all teams that have something to prove. So keep an eye out for them because the focus, the intensity is unlike anything I've ever felt. And I expect medals to come from those three, uh, from those three teams.